And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. For years, Barry Oberholzer worked across the Middle East and behind the scenes as a confidential informant, making connections, extracting valuable intelligence, and facing off against America's greatest enemy at every turn. The focus of this interview is not about Barry's work as an informant. Rather, this is a conversation about his work as a philanthropist, an unbridled humanitarian, saving people every day with the power of one. When you were young, Barry, what did you want to be? That's the first question. And then when you grew up, what did you become? So when I was young, I wanted to become a professional rugby player, which I did become uh, for about seven years. Uh, and then uh, what I became after that was uh, aviation consultant and a helicopter pilot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were staying on track. You were right aligned with, with what you wanted to do in Bay. Yeah, I was uh, definitely always had a passion for aviation, actually. When I was playing, I represented the United States in rugby and uh, we were in Italy for the World Cup and we were uh, going to the Aviano Air Force Base in Italy uh, as the US team and uh, we were invited as guests of the commander of the Air Force Base on our off day and we were allowed to um, take two two passengers on a F-16 trainer and uh, so that's where I got selected and uh, that's where my passion for aviation just never stopped from there onwards. So immediately once I was done with uh, with my rugby career, I knew that I was going wanting to go into aviation. Wow. Yeah, that would be quite an introduction, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, very good introduction and uh, never, uh, never miss the uh, smell of burnt jet fuel in the morning for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I want to look at a typical day for you and I want to take a look at a typical day in the life of Barry of you as a confidential informant so that hat when deep in the line of that work what was was there anything typical about any given day yeah I would say typical is uh is there's nothing typical of of, of a day in a confidential informant right so the the main reason and the main goal as an informant is to ensure that you just carry on intelligence to uh to your handler at any given time so uh it it is a lot of uh it's a lot of just dealing with people and gathering as much information as you can while they think you're working with them and on their side but on the other hand you're just passing on the information right so at in the beginning it is very nice. I was young. I wasn't married. Uh, I became married later on in my in my career as an informant, and then uh, and then I didn't have any kids, right? So uh, you're very you, you take on big risks, right? So if I if I think back on what situations I've been in in the past, right, it's definitely a what were you thinking scenario because so many things can go wrong. Uh, a typical day with uh, handle from meeting with cartel people, cartel leaders, uh, working on moving their cargo internationally, uh, setting up flights for them, uh, 
just dealing with the logistics of not normal logistics, right? So mm-hmm. basically anything that you can think of that's contraband, making sure they move from point A to point B successfully. But on the other hand is you're working with the authorities. So there's planning in that as well. So there's planning on, we cannot seize the cargo just as soon as the aircraft lands because then somebody will know there's a leak. So we need to plan it. So it will either be seized in another country or it will be seized uh, a few days later or they would deliver it to the warehouse and then it will only be seized a month later if the warehouse is under surveillance. It's all like a, it's a threat platform which they see what is the cargo, who's involved, what's the risk factor involved and and that's so it's a lot of planning, a lot of logistics, and that's that's the typical day I would say uh, uh, in the life of an informant, depending on where you are and what your expertise are. Right, so you get informants that are just financial expertise, uh, you get informants that are logistical, like I was, and then you get informants that's just uh, inside of the actual cartels or inside of that, and they're actual members. Right, so <laughs> I was just the logistics person making sure that their stuff gets delivered. Wow. So, I mean, what an incredibly interesting job. What was the best and what was the worst? Was there something that you loved and something that you hated about it? I think the best side was probably, the, firstly, it's a, it's a continuous adrenaline rush, right? So that's mm-hmm. probably why I don't have any more adrenal glands left. So it is definitely an adrenaline rush when you are in those scenarios and you're trying to move stuff, which is just crazy. Like, crazy quantities of heroin, crazy quantities of cigarettes, right? And, and just, uh, and, but with the, the, the good side of it is that you're knowing that you're doing it for the greater good because these guys are shipping it, but I know it's gonna be seized on the other side, right? So it won't get into the hands of, of anybody that, that, might, um, that, that might die of it, right? So, so that's, that's basically the good side of it. The bad side of it is just so many things go wrong all, all the time, right? So you're not dealing with normal individuals. Uh, you're dealing with people that have no worry about taking a life or threatening or anything like that, right? So at any time when somebody knocks on the door, when you're in that environment, you're always on your toes. So that's just, uh, you always have to watch your back. You always need to. So that stress component of the adrenaline rush, plus then the stress of, the people you're involved with, right? Uh, that's just making sure that your cover doesn't get blown. I think that's that's a lot of it. That's there's speaking a lot of that. So uh, I think also people ask, so why did you do it? Why did you do that? Like, what was your motivation? And I think your motivation is like, you can love your country, but you don't need to necessarily need to love your government, right? So like, I have a, I'm an American citizen. I love the US. I love the people of the US. I don't necessarily love the government, right? But I work for the government I don't, uh, and I supply the information to the government so that they can proceed with, with, with stopping stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, so, you know, so more than an informant, you are a husband, a father, an entrepreneur, and a philanthropist. And while you are one man with many hats to wear, you wear each of them very well with dedication and intention. When it comes to your work in philanthropy, you silently support so many, Barry. And few know of the funds that you provided to fuel programs that might not otherwise exist. 
behind the scenes, the number of lives that you have saved and sustained, it's incredible. Why is this work so important to you? I think it's it's from it comes from a few places. So if you look at my history and what I've done and, and et cetera, um, and just making it, especially in Afghanistan, right? So I've worked alongside, I never I was never in the military, so I never served in the military, um, but I, I, I served next to a lot of people that, um, uh, that served in Afghanistan. And I know a lot of people on all levels in the, in, uh, the US military that has served there. And I understand the training those people has gone through. And, and for us, we've been there for 20 plus years. And we just the fact that, again, the American people inherently are not bad people. We're all good people. Everybody's got good intentions, right? <laughs> and just leaving people like that, which you, you fought for, like you fought next to against uh, and again, like my stuff from, for instance, the heroin came from from that region, right? Mm -hmm. And those cartel leaders are, at the end of the day, it originated out of Afghanistan. So, huh. my just from from the other from the other side of the sphere, I have that need to help the people because I know what the Taliban does, right? So and. Uh, and when everybody left and everybody just came over the walls and somebody called me and said, we know that you have access for logistics. Can I get my translator out of there? Right? Can you help me? I immediately, that was, uh, that was a week before Afghanistan fell. Um, we got to work and eventually we got the guy out of there. Right. But it was many days and many nights of countless work to get people out there. But I think it's again it's for the greater good right i think uh, it's just to help people and i think people to just leave people like that in the lurch and unknowing what the taliban is capable of and what those people are inherently is not good people so you're leaving good people in the hands of bad people we have the capability of getting them out right and doing it through government <coughs> resources is either not possible or it's taking a long time just because it, any government, right? It's not just the US government. Mm -hmm. And using private resources and private funding, you're able to get people food, you're able to get babies delivered, you're able to get people out of there, and you're able to get people resituated in a country where there's actually <clears throat> not a, they don't have to fear for their life. Right, right. Um, you know, I, I wanna speak a moment about, a couple moments uh, about the U Foundation and specifically, please share how your cadet program, how your cadet program is helping former Afghan fighter pilots integrate into commercial aviation. So we, um, because my background is aviation and uh, my brother's background is also in aviation, uh, we, 22 years ago, we started our first aviation company in South Africa. And uh, uh, when Russ, Russ and I met through all of the chaos in Afghanistan and through the groups that were set up online, etc. And uh, it came to us saying, listen, like these fighter pilots are in refugee camps. They are living off food stamps. Some people are, are still in the same clothes that they were when they were extracted out of Afghanistan, right? I mean, when you, when you as a pilot, um, you have a, it's, you have the DNA inside of you, which is your, 
you you are have a passion of helping people you're in the like you just that's just who you are as an idiot mm-hmm. right and and you have knowledge and uh, leaving those people in refugee camps and they have the qualifications of getting a better job uh really it organized but it's not just from from the pilot perspective is their families right they are able to provide for their families but they don't have they don't have the resources like how do we get them flying again and that's kind of how the youth foundation started is where can we get these guys and how can we get them back up in the air right and uh, also these guys must have been so demotivated because coming from being a fighter pilot to living in a refugee camp in the country that you fought along with, right? And for, for 20 years, yeah. must be the most like demotivating factor that there is, right? And we needed to get these guys motivated. We need to give them some light at the end of the tunnel. And that's where Russ and I said, listen, let's identify the first group of guys. Let's get them back into commercial aviation. And that's how we started the, the cadet program in Youth Foundation. Then we have the, um, we have the food drops, which we do we on a weekly basis to either those families of the uh, fighter pilots that's already there or the rotary wing pilots that are in Afghanistan. Uh, and then, Russ, if you want to speak about the other two aspects of the Youth Foundation, which we also have in there. In December, going into January, uh, Barry came up with the idea of the U Cadet Corps. And the focus of the U Cadet Corps was to get pilots back up in the air. Uh, as an aviator himself, he clearly identified with how these guys must be feeling with their country fallen, with their wives and children left behind because they flew their planes to other countries so they wouldn't fall into the hands of the Taliban, which meant sacrificing their families to languishing in refugee camps for, for, for months on end, not knowing if their families were going to be safe the next day, no ability to earn a keep to send money back to feed their families through the winter. Barry got all that and, and he gave us direction to form the, the, the cadet corps and the cadet corps basically has four prongs to it. It's to get fixed wing pilots, fighter pilots back through ground school and the necessary testing and accreditation they need to have to get into civil aviation. Uh, it's the same for rotary wing pilots or what we call helicopter pilots. We're putting together a helicopter school where we're right now actually with a fixed wing school. We already have the first class going and the second class starting a week from today. When the second class is about halfway through, we'll be moving into helicopter pilot school. It's it's amazing how many pilots we're starting to put through the process. And we're, we're getting momentum in terms of getting uh, through the FAA, TSA. And, and these guys, these fixed wing guys and these rotary wing guys, they're going to be in commercial aviation careers doing what they love and, and doing what they train to do. Uh, I, I'd like to even point out that the United States spent $47 million just to train 33 A-29 pilots. What the heck are we doing? And we trained them here in the United States, right? So like, what the heck are we doing bringing these guys over here as refugees, putting them on welfare, making them into prison guards and, and, and night shift inventory clerks when they're fighter pilots with thousands of hours and, and years, cumulative years of training in the United States. So we got our fist, fixed wing school going. We got the rotary wing school in process. It'll be starting shortly. And then we're working with the aircraft maintainers. And the aircraft maintainers or aircraft mechanics, they all trained here in the United States. And there is a huge shortage of maintainers in the United States. So we're working with United Airlines now to establish 
clear career path for these maintainers. Because again, these guys have masters in aeronautical engineering. Some of them have PhDs and we got them out pumping gas and asking people if they want fries with that. I mean, they are highly, highly trained individuals. Mm -hmm. So we've got the, we got the fixed wing going, we got the rotary wing going, we got the mechanics going. And then we brought over, you know, 80 some thousand, 90 some thousand refugees under what they called phase one. And no one was talking to them about reunification. And once they're here on US soil, hey, we weren't able to bring your wives and your children out with you, um, but you know what? your wife and children out with you but we can file for reunification well no one's been doing that and barry was all over that from the beginning provide these men with the administrative assistance they need to file with the department of state so we can get these families put back together uh and and, and barry got it he got it from his life experience he got it from his aviation experience but the u cadet corps is really very firmly entrenched to the four prongs of fixed wing school rotary wing school aviation you know aviator mechanics getting them back on solid career paths and then doing the necessary paperwork and the filings to get their families over here and reunited because many of these guys Allie, they left their families august 15th you know i mean they were told to get in your plane put everything in your plane that you possibly can computers hard drives laptops and fly your plane to another country so the taliban doesn't get it the maintainers, the mechanics, they got jammed in seats. They all got flown out of the country. And, you know, and we promised them we were going to get their wives and children, and we never did. You know, and these guys that flew to other countries, uh, heck, they got thrown in jail in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Eventually, they found their way to the UAE, and they sat there for months and months and months and months. And now they're coming to the United States. We, we, we owe it to these guys to reunite their families. So the U Foundation provides that administrative assistance to get those applications and petitions done to get those those, you know, a wife and children over here, make these families whole again. And as Barry said, get them on the right career path, get them back up in the air. Uh, Barry, would you like me to expand on the medical corps and the supply corps as well? Yeah, please go ahead. So I had formed the Afghan Medical Corps and the Afghan Supply Corps. Uh, Shortly before Barry and I met, it was very much of an underground movement and reactionary. Uh, it was a little out of focus. The medical corps was basically to respond to emergency medical calls 24 hours a day through doctors in Afghanistan who were willing to treat Afghan patients who were either indigent or high security risks, all quiet, under the table, no charge. The Afghan Supply Corps was supplying humanitarian aid as winter approached. It was a huge fear. People needed food, they needed wood, they needed blankets, they needed winter clothing. Um, and it was also somewhat reactionary. I met Barry and uh, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, I, I call Barry an unbridled humanitarian. It's a combination of Barry's life experiences, you know, way in the past and his acumen as an entrepreneur that allowed us to get very focused very quickly on those aspects. And we instituted our safe delivery program with a maternity hospital in Kabul, where we facilitate approximately 30 safe deliveries a week. I know that doesn't sound like much, but Afghanistan before the Taliban took over had one of the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the world. Now data is not even available, but it's off the charts according to the OB docs I talked to in Afghanistan. The safe delivery program that the U Foundation funds and keeps going 
provides the ability for women to come in and have prenatal care, safe deliveries, and postpartum care without charge. Uh, and, and sadly, many of Afghan women ceased prenatal care in August, August 15th to be exact, last year when the country fell. So it's been an amazing program. When you talk about Barry saving lives, I can tell you right now, we're facilitating delivery of 30 babies a week in a safe environment. Barry is saving lives. As far as the Afghan Supply Corps goes, I, I don't even know where to like, I, I don't know where to start because I, I am stunned that we actually got Barry to the table for a meeting today because uh, as I have said upon occasion, Barry is not a man to take a bow. Uh, but no one's gonna know that what Barry put together uh, as an army of one has expanded to the point where it feeds approximately 8,000 people a month at times. You're not going to know that talking about talking to Barry or the U Foundation. No, nobody's taking a bow. But, you know, in the worst of winter, we were delivering wood to people's homes, coal to people's homes. Um, one of the funny nuances that we got involved in, and I say funny because it was just something to be really proud of, is when, when the country collapsed last August, people had to sell things in order to fund their, their way of living. One of the first things they sold was their home heating systems call them trees or wood burning stoves mm -hmm. because all those afghans were positive the united states was going to come and rescue them and get them out before winter set in right guess what that didn't happen and as winter set in these people had no way to heat their homes so the u foundation went into business started buying wood burning stoves and actually having them installed properly in homes in afghanistan what i mean by properly is you know, with the actual vent piping that goes to the outside so people aren't dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. And we became almost, uh, I say tongue in cheek, but subcontractors or contractors probably is better. We facilitate the delivery of charis, meaning wood burning stoves to heat people's homes, allow them to cook. And we had them installed in the homes and vented to the outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's incredible work. And when you look at, you know, the power of one, how that is so powerful, one connection, one conversation and the work that that can lead to. Uh, and we discussed the other day about this idea of a digital army, the fact that the two of you met with this digital communication and the many more who you've connected with because of this serving as a conduit to do all of this work, uh, that it is so important. Um, Anything more that either of you want to share specifically just about the work that you've been collaborating, doing together? I like to share about the, the power of, of the digital age. Barry and I met on the internet, yes. Uh, Barry alluded earlier in this conversation to the power of private resources and private funding. Uh, in, in the current situation and in the inability for the government to accomplish great things. And what I mean by great things, I'm talking about humanitarian things. The power of one digitally has exploded. Uh, Barry has shown that he's been a mentor to many in that regard, but you know, one person meets one person who meets another person who meets another person. And, and suddenly you're finding a way to assist people with food. You're finding a way to drop off insulin at two o'clock in the morning to somebody in the middle of Kabul who's struggling. You're finding a way to transport a woman with premature twins in the back of a food truck to a hospital. It's mm -hmm. all about the power of one and what, what private resources can do and what people now on the internet are able to accomplish. 
And, you know, it's, again, I, I call Barry an unbridled humanitarian. We have definitely saved lives. I've gone to bed at night knowing, wow, we, we just accomplished something doing that. Mm -hmm. And I, I wish others would recognize the power. You, you know, the people that, 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 that Barry has empowered as I, as I work down the food chain, we're not talking, you know, special forces guys. We're, we're, we're talking soccer moms who are on the internet after the kids go to bed at night, okay? We're, we're, we're talking school teachers. We're talking I can, uh, retired people who get on the internet and become the power of one and find a way to work together to save lives. And that's how it passes through. And that is the magnificence of a combination of private resources and the digital age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Barry, anything more you'd like to say on this? No, I think uh, when, when Russ and I met through uh, an online group that was set up uh, uh, for the specifically for the extraction of Afghan uh, citizens during the, the critical ev evacuation and the fall of, uh, of Kabul during that time. And uh, I was just uh, monitoring the channel, seeing what everybody was doing. Uh, and then a friend of mine that's, uh, that's in DC uh, told me, you need to connect with this guy. Um, they need you, you, they need some stuff, right? And then I connected with Rice offline, and we've since then never disconnected, right? So we've we've basically and and Rice gives a lot of credit to me, but the credit should go back to him. He's on he's online twenty four seven when Kabul wakes up and uh, and the US goes to bed. He's uh, he's active and and doing all of the the on the ground work, right? So we just supply the resources from the Youth Foundation side. Uh, my brother and I have a weekly meeting on what we can allocate on the following week to the foundation. Russ gives us his needs and we try and meet those needs every week as we can, right? And uh, and he provides the, the support to us. He shows us the pictures of the babies being delivered, the people that are being fed. This is not just, I think the big thing is that you get a lot of charities and foundations out there saying we're in Afghanistan, we're raising millions and millions of dollars, and okay, so like, where's it going to, right? So if you had a million dollars, you know how many people you can feed in Afghanistan? Like, why is it still look, why does it still look like that? So uh, I think we don't, we don't donate millions of dollars on a, uh, to the foundation, but we do make a difference with what we donate, right? So we, we do what we can, we push where we can. Uh, and, uh, and I think, Russ and, and his team on the ground in Afghanistan has made a huge impact in these people's lives, right? So uh, we are the conduit of, of the financial conduit to make it happen. And we're happy to do that. And I'm very passionate about aviation. And I'm, I'm like, these, this cadet school is my like little uh, passion project because I just know what those pilots will feel like when they get back in the cockpit and they can provide for their families, mm -hmm. right? Because when I go back in my life and, and everything has not been like uh moonshine and roses right so it's been a it's been a tough journey and i know like if you can provide for your kids you have a skill level and you can provide back for your kids and your family i know what that means for those guys right because they have that skill level and to get them back in the cockpit that's my biggest my biggest accomplishment would be to get those guys back in cockpits in commercial aviation and see them flying, right? Because we just left them there 
they left them in refugee camps. We got them here, and then nobody, then it got disconnected, right? So uh, the, the the best day would be just to have those those cadets back into a cockpit. That would be really, really something that that we can show. Uh, there it is, right? We did it. So uh, and we're doing small wins every day. Uh, there's still a big battle to fight in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people that need help, but I think uh, just making these small wins every day and, and helping the guys that are here and the kids that are here. We've got so many abandoned like minors, right? So yeah. uh, that's, that's, that on, that's on another level, right? So unaccompanied minors sitting in uh, uh, refugee camps on military bases in the US, like th this, these are results of people just giving their kids away during the fall, right? Just getting them through the gate and the US had to process them and putting them on planes. And uh, just that is all different like side of the project we, we wanna fund and make sure like, how do we get these these unaccompanied minor placed, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's another big thing that we need to work on. So as I say, the battle is still, is still there. We're just making small wins every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the war is so, certainly still going and but like, like you say, it's just taking one battle at a time. Um, so it is the power of one, one connection, one conversation, one story, right? So the story that we're sharing here, the series of stories that we share about these pilots, people need to understand because a lot of people, if it's not right in front of them, they think it's not happening. If they don't see it on one of the major networks, well, it's really not happening. Oh, we're still there. There's still an issue. Yeah. Yeah. There is. Tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are Aware Now.